I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is The Jackpod, where On Point news analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings Jack's unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Well, we're at episode 21, and if the podcast were years, it would be able to drink, Jack. Uh, but, <laughs> but with that dad joke aside, what's your headline for today? Saving Rafa. Meaning what? Well, Rafa at the southern edge of Gaza it could soon rank with Guernica and Dresden uh, as a place name in the annals of atrocity. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, in a speech uh, from the Senate floor this week, lit up the human stakes in Rafa. Rafa was a town of just 250,000 people before the war. Now there are 1.4 million people there, more than five times the original population. These people are packed into crowded UN shelters or sleeping out in tents. It is a daily struggle for them to find food or water. Mm. And Jack, why did your mind um, really focus on what Sanders said? Well, because he goes on to say that out of all times, uh, and with this humanitarian crisis in, in Rafa, the Prime Minister of Israel is announcing that uh, his, he's going to send the IDF in an attack on the city and invest it. And uh, uh, he has said that uh, the army needs to come up with a plan to move the million civilians out of the way. Well, of course, that's a council of impossibility. That can't happen. And it is an extremely threatening moment to think of just simply the human situation now, people without bread, people without water, sewage overflowing, a million and some people where there used to be a quarter of a million. Uh, to, to compound that with an, an, an attack would produce just a just unimaginable human suffering. Mm. And, and, and Sanders goes on to say, you know, we Americans are not mere bystanders to the war in Gaza or to Rafa. What is happening in Gaza now is funded with U.S. taxpayer dollars. These are our bombs and our military equipment that is being used. We are complicit. This is not just an Israeli war. It is an American war. Well, Jack, the United States has long professed an unwavering alliance and support of Israel. Military support um, has been a part of that for a, a great deal of time. And it's not just it's not just one of, uh, you know, mutual benefit between two allies. I mean, because of the catastrophe of the Second World War and the Holocaust, it's also a, a, a moral uh, partnership. Let's put it that way. But, you know, even on this very show, we've had people who say, Israelis who love their country, who say, well, nothing is going to change what Prime Minister Netanyahu and the right wing of his party are going to do or how they're they're prosecuting this war uh, on Gaza than a withdrawal of U.S. support, financial and military. But, I mean, 
Is Joe is that in the American interest? Would Joe Biden do that? Well, it has happened before, or at least the threat of it has. Uh, and uh, that model is available to Joe Biden. The model was set by Ronald Reagan in 1982. In August of 1982, he sent a diplomat, Philip Habib, to Beirut to try to uh, work a ceasefire between the attacking Israeli forces and the resisting forces of the PLO. And uh, he was working on that you know, stand down ceasefire, just as our diplomats in Egypt on the weekend were working toward a ceasefire and a hostage exchange in Gaza, when uh, in 1982, uh, the prime minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, shelled West Beirut, and that put an end to any, any talk of, uh, of, of, you know, ceasefire negotiations. Reagan was furious after uh, some time, trouble getting to, um, to Begin. He finally got him on the phone. Uh, and, and there was a colloquy with uh, Mr. Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks. Mr. Speaks, did the president shout at uh, the prime minister? No comment. Did the president curse the prime minister? No comment. Uh, did the president, Mr. Speaks, threaten to withhold U.S. aid if the prime minister did not stop his attack on uh, his, his shelling of West Beirut? And then came the, came the line, no comment. In other words, Reagan said, if you persist in this, I'm going to stop aid to Israel right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, whether he had that authority or not, I don't know. But that's how Ronald Reagan, in a crisis not dissimilar from what we saw, what we see now, and what we saw in fine last weekend when humanitarian aid talks and ceasefire talks were going on in Cairo, just then, the Israelis raid Rafah and extract two uh, hostages, and thankfully they did got, get them alive. They, they did a diversion bombing raid that may have killed a couple of hundred uh, Palestinian civilians. So it's exactly the kind of moment that Reagan faced in 1982. Jack, can I just jump in here? Um, again, this yeah. is yet another one of the reasons why this the jackpot is so valuable. I will fully admit that I did not know uh, what you just said about Reagan getting Menachem Begin on the phone uh, and berating him, <laughs> even threatening to withhold U.S. aid. I was under the presumption, now erroneous, that the United States, no U.S. president had ever made that threat <laughs> uh, to withhold aid to an Israeli leader. Can you um, tell me a little bit more about what drove Reagan to that extreme? What was he fearful of in terms of U.S. interest might happen if Israel continued to to shell Beirut? Well, first of all, it would it would it would end the the mission of Philip Habib, whom whom Reagan sent there, not just to negotiate a ceasefire, but an evacuation of the Palestinian, of the PLO fighters from Beirut, a very complicated uh, deal. And, uh, uh, and, and that was his way of saying, here's how we're going to end this war, uh, Israel. You want the PLO out, we'll get them out, we'll put them on boats and send them to uh, Algeria and elsewhere. 
but you're not going to go in to try to slaughter them. Uh, of course, there was a good deal of slaughtering going on with the names Sabra and Shatila, for example. Refugee camps mm. are, uh, you know, were, uh, were atrocities committed by uh, Lebanese militia allied with Israel. In any event, he wanted a ceasefire and then to remove the Kazos belly by evacuating the PLO. And that's what happened days later. Uh, under the watchful eye of peacekeepers assembled from France, Italy, and eventually the United States, unfortunately, tragically, over 200 of our peacekeepers were blown up by a terrorist mm. bomb in, uh, in, while sleeping, even, in Beirut. Uh, but, but that was the deal. They were evacuated. The problem, something like 12,000 were. And that's, that's another model for Mr. Biden. <laughs> The, the, the model of Beirut in 1982. All right, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, you want to attack Rafa to get these three battalions. He says, we've, uh, I think he said, we, we've, we've destroyed 20 odd of them, the battalions. Now there are three left of Hamas. What is that? Three, 5,000 people, maybe at tops. Okay, we will evacuate them. We will get them out of there and have them sent to uh, hell and gone, wherever. Uh, and that will re that will remove the the problem of Hamas from from Gaza, and it will prevent you from obviate the need to assault Rafa. Uh, could that work? Well, it is interesting that Tom Segev, a a an Israeli in 1982, he was an Israeli soldier in Beirut, and he saw this happen. He has recently said, "Here is a way out." For Israel, when you're down to the nub, when you're down to the last battalions of Hamas, including, and let's face it, the, the people that organized the massacre of October, when you're down to that remnant, do a Beirut, do what uh, uh, Reagan did in 1982 and evacuate the remnant of uh, Hamas. That's a model Joe Biden could use to save Rafa. Yeah, Jack, this is so fascinating because listening to what you say, it makes me wonder, I mean, what we can't know is what's truly in the mind of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, right? Because he declared that uh, after October 7th, that Israel would do everything in its power to eliminate Hamas, right? I mean, the, the language was right. as as strident and, and, and pointed as that. Now, of course, what does elimination mean? in his mind, in his war cabinet's mind, and especially in the minds of the far-right members of the Israeli government, some of whom are also, uh, you know, ministers right now in Netanyahu's government, because many of them, I don't think they would be satisfied with even this small remnant, as you put it, of Hamas being allowed to evacuate. They are seeking true elimination. So taking this back to Biden, as you've been talking about, Jack, Here's the thing that I wonder. What's stopping him from calling Netanyahu's bluff? What do you think is stopping him from getting on the phone and doing a Reagan-esque type call that you just mentioned? Well, you know, he was, uh, last week, uh, he was embarrassed by, you know, the, the special counsel saying that he, uh, he had memory, severe memory issues. Well, here is a case with Israel where his memory is all too good. And what he remembers is a moment in 1973, when he met with the Israeli Prime Minister Golda 
my hair. And here he is. We're standing there having a photograph taken like you and I are standing with Dr. Chris. And she, without looking at me, she turned she like this. She said, you look worried, Senator. I said, I am. She said, don't worry. We Jews have a secret weapon in our fight. We have no place else to go. Jack, this is a story that the president has said quite frequently. Why is it so important to, to remember that now in understanding Biden's uh, choices or, or the choices he hasn't made? Right. Well, of course, the situation then was that was just before the 1973 war. It looked very ominous for Israel. And that's what, why the prime minister seemed to be uh, showing him maps and things because it was there was imminent. War was imminent. And war then, of course, meant, uh, you know, several Arab states uh, backed, at least offstage, by the Soviet Union attacking Israel. A dire, dire moment. And that moment crystallized in, in Biden's mind the existential desperation of the, of the Jewish people after mm-hmm. World War II. You've alluded to that. And that's our secret weapon. We have no place else to go. Uh, of course, that's true of the Palestinians as well. They have no place else to go. They have no place else to go as a people. And then in the fine, in, in the microcosm, they have no place else to go in Gaza. There is no place to go. There is no place that's safe. Um, so that that line of, of the prime ministers uh, really lights up the whole tragedy of the uh, of the Israeli Arab uh, conflict. And it in you know we we have to note that famously Golda Meir was said to have remarked, uh, "There is no such thing as a Palestinian mm. people." Well, there are, and they're dying in their thousands now. And that line was so important, has, has haunted uh, uh, the president. He alluded to it. He gave that speech when he went to Israel after the massacre. Uh, and he showed then such empathy for the, the horrors that were visited upon the Israelis. And such, he was alive to what that meant to Jews all over the world. This a massacre just because of their religion because of their ethnicity, because they were Jews. And he spoke to that. But he also said something else. He said, you have a right to defend yourself, but don't take a, take a tip from an American who saw what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. Don't make war out of vengeance. And I'm afraid those cabinet members you speak to in that right-wing government, they mean to make war out of vengeance. And Biden did, did, did make that warning, but there's been reporting that his aides, younger people, have gone to that uh, Golda Meir moment and said he's fixated on Israel 1973, when it was a beleaguered country uh, under uh, Arab guns, under even offstage Soviet guns. And his aides say he hasn't been able to break from that moment to wake up and say, no, this is Benjamin Netanyahu. This is a guy that doesn't want peace. This is a guy whose whole raison d'etre has been to frustrate American efforts to create peace. He hasn't quite got there, but frustrations are mounting. They wanted, the Israelis have, have stopped delivering flour in the north through the port of Ashdod. The United States says, you've got to have that flour. We have, it has to go in. They've stopped. They are slowing down and have slowed down the resupply through Rafa and other places for humanitarian aid. 
Uh, they have uh, the prime minister spurned uh, our peace, you know, our efforts to try to work something out with Hamas. Affront after affront has been slammed at this administration. And maybe it's time for Joe Biden to try what Ronald Reagan did. It might avail nothing. But wouldn't it be something to have a president of the United States say to our people, look, we have gone the limit with this country. We can't go on to this uh, attack on Rafa. We draw the line. And Israel, you're on your own. Well, wouldn't that be something? Mm. Well, Jack, I have just one last question for you. This is not an excuse. It's just to further the exploration a little bit because you, know, you talk you talk about, uh, rightly so, Joe Biden's fixation on that you know, 1973 meeting with Golda Meir. But again, in an attempt to sort of understand the f- fundamental motivations of leaders with enormous power at their fingertips, we've spoken often on on, on point on regarding various issues about the power of generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the immediacy of the intergenerational trauma felt by the Jewish people due to the Holocaust was very much revived on October 7th. And mm. um, that sort of crashing down of a sense of security, again, I'm not saying this is an excuse for Netanyahu's choices, but I'm saying that um, uh, the Jewish people are still living with grandparents and great-grandparents who survived the camps. They know yeah. how quickly things can turn and catastrophes can be met upon a people. So is that—and that fear has been, has been heightened again now with the rise of—dramatic rise of anti-Semitism. So politics aside for a moment— I guess what I'm trying to say is, does that not then reiterate the dual tragedy that you were talking about earlier, that that motivation is core to perhaps how many Israeli leaders and cabinet members are responding now, but also that same intergenerational trauma of what happens to the Palestinian people in 1947 and 1948 when the Israeli state was created? Yes, never again. Wasn't that the, you know, never again the Holocaust. And yet here in Gaza for the last nearly 20 years, you've had a death cult of terrorists, these Hamas people dedicated to eliminating the Jewish state and the Jewish people from uh, the land of Israel. I mean, they, it's as uh, close to a Nazi uh, uh, you know, objective as anything seen uh, since and uh, let's also face, uh, they're backed by an even power, an even more powerful and deadly enemy, Iran, which also threatens to obliterate and could, if it gets a bomb, do it by, by nuclear means, obliterate the Jewish state. So yes, my gosh, the stakes, the psychological burden of the past could not be, be piled higher upon even, uh, you know, ideologically repugnant Israeli leaders. That's there. And it's in the people, too. Uh, They don't like Netanyahu. They want this war. They don't want a slaughter, but they want Hamas to be rooted out. And that's why I suggest that the—and Tom Segev, the 
the Israeli historian has suggested that the Beirut situation of 1982 may offer a model for the end game. Evacuate the remnant of uh, uh, Hamas, good riddance, and then let the future have some sort of Palestinian government in Gaza that is not Hamas. Mm. Actually, Jack, so I think this is the, the great... Uh, uh um, gift, if I can put it that way, of this particular episode, because you know, even the way I just described the the situation uh, between Israel and and Gaza, we tend to think of it because of these heavy, heavy, uh, you know, moral considerations. We tend to think of it in very Manichaean terms, right? Just black mm-hmm. and white. So it's very eye-opening to hear that Ronald Reagan found a way in between <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the all or nothing to you know. No, no matter what the, the moral considerations are, none of it is ex- an excuse for inaction. So mm-hmm. that's why I think the question for Jackpod listeners this week is going to be this. You know, what do you think of Jack's example of Ronald Reagan and his phone call to Menachem Begin? Do you think, A, should Joe Biden do the same thing and really you know, push Benjamin Netanyahu uh, to make a decision in the face of the possible withdrawal? of American support? Or do you think that if Biden did that, it would actually uh, reap negative consequences for Israel and the United States? That's what I want to know from Jackpot listeners this week. And if you haven't already got the On Point Vox Pop app, because you know by now that that's the way that we want to hear from you because it makes your voice sound crystal clear and marvelous, go to wherever you get your apps, look for On Point Vox Pop and that's the way you can take part in the jackpot. Okay, Jack. Well, you left us with a lot to think about for this week. And we'll have even more to think about when we talk about the uh, feedback we got from last week's episode, which was about Joe Biden, the bystander. I definitely see Joe Biden as a bystander. I do not see President Biden as a bystander. I do feel like Biden is a bystander. It doesn't, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Joe Biden is a bystander. Okay, so that was just a few of the divided takes we got from On Point listeners Mm -hmm. regarding last week's episode. We're going to hear a lot more from listeners in just a moment. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. Well, Jack, we are back. And just as a quick reminder, last week's Jackpod was on Jack's thesis of whether Joe Biden is a bystander now. Even though as president of the United States, he's unable to control events, world events, 
swirling around him in the same way that many presidents usually can. Tons of feedback, Jack. (laughs) And I think Jackpot (laughs) listeners are getting a little bit more bold while saying, respectfully, sir, I disagree. Um, So we're going to hear some of that. First of all, here is uh, Anna Rasmussen from Santa Cruz, California. She actually agrees with you, though, Jack. She does see Biden as a bystander. Count me in as one American Democrat falling into panic. Are all 85 million of us never-Trumpers supposed to just watch Joe Biden decline his way toward November? As if somehow we owe him another shot at the presidency just because he thinks he deserves it? Our democracy is in grave risk of collapse. Where is our civic opportunity to say no to Joe? I grow more discouraged, disappointed, and disgusted by the day. You know, uh, Anna's phrase, declining towards November, brought to mind slouching towards Bethlehem. But, (laughs) well, here's another one. This is Jackie in Atlanta. And yes, she sees President Biden as a bystander, but he's not the only one, she says. I do feel like Biden is a bystander, but I think that the um, Democratic Party has been a bystander for the past, I don't know, how many years I keep seeing the country take all these sharp right turns and the Democrats just kind of continue with the same kind of mill of the lane messaging that doesn't seem to get them anywhere. They have no vision and no kind of future plan of problem solving that they're presenting to us. Thoughts, Jack? Well, there's no question uh, that Jackie is right about uh, what the Democrats need to do now. The, the president has got to say, what is he, what can he do in a second term? And especially if he comes in with a Democratic Congress. But that is a a void. He has not said, he has not enunciated a vision other than, I'm not Trump. As for the party, yes and no. If the Democrats too sharply define an ideology or a vision, they risk cutting off a a piece of their coalition. You know, if you're too progressive, you're going to lose moderates. If you're too moderate, you're going to lose progressives. If you if you sound a little bit uh, you know, leery about uh, immigration issues, you're going to lose activists. The point is, such a big coalition almost has to be a kind of themeless pudding. You know, uh, just <laughs> we we can't we can't we don't dare say what our vision is. Watch us. And in fact, they've done a lot that answers to a a progressive party. The the you know the climate change, the chips bill, putting mm-hmm. onshoring manufacturing, and my God, the uh, the uh, infrastructure bill, the gun legislation. Point is, all of those are pretty darn progressive. The Democrats are not shouting that from the rooftops because they'd rather keep the themeless pudding going. Mm, themeless pudding. Wow. Okay, Jack. So as I mentioned, um, quite a few folks submitted thoughts that were in disagreement with you. So here are some of them. This is Susie Gordon from Redlands, California. She does not think that Joe Biden is a bystander to history. And she thinks that the reason you even sort of put forth that thesis last week was because of the recent special counsel report on Biden's mishandling of classified documents. My bigger concern is that this is a question that sounds straight from the playbook of Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump and his comments now easing their way into the last remaining media outlets that provide objective reports? It was good that the president addressed the issue head on 
immediately after the report came out. The president should continue to do so, because if he doesn't, then there will be a perception that he doesn't care and is not involved. Jack, before I let you respond to that, um, I think we need to clarify a little bit of our process here, because listeners don't know, you and I usually record the jackpot on a Thursday afternoon. Then it shows up in their feed on a Friday morning. Um, Some people don't get around to listening it until the weekend. Lo and behold, news happens between Thursday afternoon and Friday morning. So we recorded last week's episode about Biden, the bystander, before the special counsel report came out. And just so everyone knows, as soon as it came out, Jack emailed me a lot of messages and thoughts. So he was definitely thinking about it. But they were absolutely not in conjunction with each other. I can guarantee you that. Um, But nevertheless, Jack, let me ask you about what... um, uh, what Susie was saying uh, about perhaps, you know, the impact of the special counsel's report and even how it's reverberating uh, through the media and advancing this perception of him as being uh, growing uh, feeble mentally. Well, I mean, I think uh, the people who have pointed to the Justice Department regulations say that the special counsel went further than he needed to, than than what the um, than what the usual document requires, and that there was a gratuitous uh, indulgence of this idea of the president as feeble. Nevertheless, that, uh, you know, happening on the, just the days before the president did not address, missed the chance to talk to 100 million people at the Super Bowl, which is, CBS had given him that invitation, he bowed out. And, you know, the point I was making in my piece last week is he's been disappearing all along. He just will not meet with the press. And when he does, it tends to be pretty disastrous, as that press conference did last week, where he was flumbering around with couldn't remember names and so on. That's not the end of the world, but it just doesn't inspire any confidence. And that's the terrible dilemma of the president. He inspires no confidence. This week, he talked to, in the uh, Oval Office with King Abdullah, the second of Jordan, and he he said too many of the over 27,000 Palestinians killed have been innocent civilians and children. So he made that strong statement. But here's Tom Friedman, who's a great friend of the president. He said, as I listened to Biden, though, it struck me He sounded more like a columnist than a president, an observer, not someone with the power to change things. That's the the bystander effect, the president acting like uh, he doesn't have the power to change things. Ronald Reagan showed the president does have the power to change things. Okay, Jack, we've got one more. This is Jimmy Roche from Baltimore, Maryland. And in his message, he was responding to you, Jack, but in a sense, also responding to the the desperation of fellow Jackpod listeners, Anna and Jackie. Democrats need to take their medicine and vote for Biden. Vote for a chair. Vote for a dog. They need to vote for anyone who isn't Donald Trump. I would vote for Biden if he was literally dead. If Joe Biden is a bystander, do you know what Donald Trump is? Donald Trump is a crazed madman driving his car into bystanders. It's voting for the least worst option, but so much of life is like that. 
I half want to just end the jackpot right there, but I will give you a chance to uh, to add your thoughts to Jimmy's. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't improve on his Morton formulation. I'd vote for a chair. I'd vote for Biden if he were dead over Trump. And I like the idea, the image, and it's not inapt of uh, of Trump like a crazed driver driving into bystanders, which is, of course, what he will do to the republic if, if elected. He'll smash into uh, the all, well, all the guardrails and many of the bystanders. Mm. Okay, Jack. Well, as always, I we want to thank the uh, ever-growing army of Jackpod fans and your really intelligent and thoughtful feedback. Definitely send us your thoughts on this week's pod as well. But with that, Jack, that wraps up episode 21. Thank you, as always. Thank you so much. And one quick note before I sign off, I'm going to be away from the microphone next week, but On Point senior editor, Dory Scheimer, who actually produces uh, all of the jackpods, will be sitting in for me, so Jack will have a wonderful conversation with her, and we'll keep the pod going. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is the Jackpod from On Point. <laughs> <laughs> 